Welcome to the Curious Catholic Podcast, where in each episode we pilgrimage further through the Catholic imagination. This is our next installment in our Lenten Dante series, our second with his fantastic Purgatorio. In our last episode, we came upon the shores of Mount Purgatory. We washed ourselves of the soot of hell, and now we look upward uh, with hope towards the pinnacle of Mount Purgatory, but not without without the hard work of purgation and sanctification ahead of us. I'm joined again by Paul Camacho, who's uh, journeying with me and us uh, throughout the entirety of this series, all the way up through paradise in the Easter season. And so in this episode, Paul and I are going to consider pride and the process of purging ourselves of that, or at least uh, as Dante envisions it, uh, with with the ring of the prideful and their process of purification. So you can jump with Paul and I now to the lower rings of Mount Purgatory on our way up to its gate. We're jumping to Canto 9, which is about a third of the way through the um, through the Purgatorio. And the reason we're going to Canto 9 is because Canto 9 is when he begins actually to go up the mountain. So you say, well, what happened for eight cantos? What, were, what was he doing? And that's kind of the point. The first eight Cantos are devoted to those souls who are kind of circling around the bottom of the mountain, not yet going up, because they were, in Dante's language, late repentance. And so, um, what we have here is those who sort of converted on their deathbed or who were excommunicated from the church but made an act of forgiveness. Um, and the idea here is that um, there's a kind of temporal analog to how long you put off your repentance. So, on the one hand, Dante is saying, even if at the very, very last moment, he had, there are some who in battle, there's some souls who in battle, they were struck. And as they're dying, they they cry out Mary and then they fall dead mm. <laughs> or or they sigh a kind of prayer. And that's, and that's just enough for them to express their contrition so that they're saved. And yet there's a cost, so to speak, for spending one's entire life putting off this forgiveness. And so Dante, the poet, sort of... Um, forces us as readers to wait to get to purgatory proper, mm-hmm. just like these souls are sort of waiting and in this kind of um, uh, waiting period before they're even able to start on their um, purgative, restorative suffering. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So that's what occupies the first eight um, cantos. Um, and then in canto nine, um, Dante, Dante sort of woken from a dream and carried by um, St. Lucy, who's one of his patrons, up um, to the first terrace, um, or actually just right outside the first terrace of the mountain. So we should say these terraces are kind of like the opposite of, or the inverse of hell. In hell, we had these circles that were kind of cut into the mountain. You'd walk around it and then find a way down to the next one and walk around in here you can imagine almost like a I, I tell my students imagine a wedding cake with many tiers that goes up and up and there are seven of these terraces and these seven correspond to the seven deadly sins um and these terraces are sort of cut into the mountains so that at each level what you have is about um a, enough for about three people to walk across and on one side they always walk around um, to the right as you're facing the mountain. So they're going counterclockwise. And on one side to their to their right as they're walking is a sheer drop off down um, all the way down off. So there's, there's no guardrails or anything. <laughs> and then on their left, 
is the mountain itself that stretches up to the left and the mountain will play um a role actually in their in their purgation so so here we are right on the outside of starting to go up to these terraces and what we what we have what we find um is a gate and i'm i'm really curious matt what you what you made of this gate dante here is using all sorts of images um to talk about the gate into purgatory but what did did you make of the gate here it it gave me the sense of this is like a um sort of like it's now an adventure story in a way um Mm -hmm. you know you're really like i mean you mentioned lord of the i mean mentioned gandalf a moment ago and kind of giving me that that sort of epic journey sensibility um and sort of the the symbolism is is right there and it's totally fitting for that that sort of genre where like everything on the journey all the steps uh has this deeper meaning right um so we have these three steps leading up to the gate uh each of a different color um and there's an angel guarding the gate right um and so it's crucial it's it, it seems virgil's instructing him to uh, lower himself, right? Sort of make homage towards the angel, and um, it's interesting, right? The angel gives a sense that, like, he 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 won't deny anyone entrance that has the proper disposition, right? right. Uh, that's the sense you get uh, of humbling oneself, which is perfect because we're, you know, the the terraces of pride aren't far away. But so the the three colors, like, I, mean, I don't know. Thank God for uh, translators and <laughs> commentators, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, I'm looking at Chiardi. So, and we, so we should describe these. Yeah, yeah, we should describe these steps, right? Uh, so we got the, cle- the clear marble, does, yeah. right? We got uh-huh. the white clear marble, right? Step one. Step two, this deep, dark purple. And then step three, this blood red porphyry, although he, doesn't, he says it looks like porphyry. Um, mm-hmm. Right? So just, um, you know, sort of like a reddish, purplish tone itself, right? Right. Um, so, you know, at least in the commentary right the idea is that in the first step you can see a, a clear image of yourself right right mm-hmm. a, a, this clear sense of, of yourself um which seems perfectly fitting and i think to a lot of people like, including myself that sounds great like i get to see myself okay clearly but then like you actually see yourself and you're like oh man right. wish i hadn't done that so then it leads to <laughs> contrition and you're like oh right. man I was ignoring those parts of myself, that ha- that room in the house that I just closed the door to and don't feel like addressing because it's so shabby. Um, so contrition, right? And then uh, at least the suggestion is that the, the final step is gratitude or satisfaction for having repented, right? Um, right. So again, the theme of ascent, it's great, but it's, it's an arduous, it's a challenging prospect too. I don't know, what, what, were your, what are your thoughts each time you return to the steps? Yeah, they're they're so rich. I mean, Dante kind of slows the action down for us, and he describes these steps. He describes the angel. The angel, by the way, we should say, is sitting at the top of the steps. The angel, a glorious, the glorious creature of God, is um, who's so bright you can't look at his face directly. Is nevertheless clothed in a, a very plain gray mm-hmm. um, tunic and is sitting on a very plain gray. Um, again, that that notion of humility, a sort of willing embrace of humility. But the steps, I yeah, I think they're they're really important. Um, um, the the clear one, the white one. I think you're right. He 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 goes out of his way. He says it's polished, so his image was reflected in true likeness. And like you said, I think this is about reflecting on the self. I think it's about 
um, looking at the self clearly, right? Being forced to look at the self. The second one is purple, as you said, but it's there's another important element of it. It's that it's been cracked through its length and breadth. Mm-hmm. And so what we have is a kind of cruciform, a cross that's been formed in it. Um, so we could we could think of that as um, the um, suffering of Christ, perhaps um, that that accomplishes our um, restoration, or we could think of this as a recognition of our own broken state. Right. So we look at ourselves, and then we see, yes, we're also we're broken in need of this. And then the third, this flaming red, it's linked to blood. Right. I think mm-hmm. here, it's Christ's sacrifice to be sure, but also the need for 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 penance right yeah. as well so like every like like always dante is, is not entirely clear but it's really evocative um and and clearly these colors have have meaning for him and and these again there's a reason that these are also you know like the colors of the liturgical season right mm-hmm. um yeah. in, in the catholic tradition these are colors that the priests would wear right uh, just the second stone, it's, it, it's described as unhewn. So you get the sense of roughness mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of what we were getting at, uh, almost as if it had been burned. And I, I really do like that image of the blood that spurts out from a vein, right? The, the third step is right. of that color. But you get the sense, like, right. in, in the process of conversion, you really, if it's done r- properly, you really are opening yourself up in this way, right? Um, right. In a way, you're, like, opening a vein, um, right. pouring yourself out. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I love that. And the, um, it, it's amazing too. I mean, the imagery just, it just keeps coming at us. Um, they, they, they climb up the stairs together and Virgil tells Dante to, to, he says, humbly petition him, the angel to slide the bolts. And so the image we have now, they've climbed up these stairs and now they're in front of this enormous gate. And, the angel is sitting there with a with a sword in one hand and with two keys in the other mm, hand, mm-hmm. um, which is really significant. And and so Dante, we'll come back to the keys in a minute. What, what does Dante do? This is the verse. He says, devoutly, I cast myself down at the angel's holy feet. I begged him for mercy and to let me en- enter. But first, three times I smote my breast. So that's a that's a gesture, right? Taking the hand in a fist and and striking one's chest three times, and asking for mercy. That's a gesture that um, that Roman Catholics in particular will be very familiar with. It's something we do in the Mass, where we say that we confess that we've sinned through our fault, through our fault, through our most grievous fault. So mm-hmm. Dante is making this liturgical gesture. Um, there as he kneels and acknowledging his the fact that he's sinful and the what's the response of the angel well the first response is to take his sword (laughs) as dante's kneeling and to cut into his forehead um seven letter p's now the letter p we we never know for sure but the letter p probably stands for the latin word um uh, peccatum which is the latin word for sin so seven peas that are carved into Dante's forehead. Dante doesn't say whether this hurts or not, but um, th- that's what happens, right? And then the angel takes out the keys after having carved these into Dante's forehead, and he puts them into the door and turns the um, and turns the locks. But not before he tells us something really important. He says, "Look, these keys—they're not mine. I got them from um, none other than Peter." 
And we realize, like, all of a sudden, we're at Peter's, the, ga- the gates of, of heaven, right? Um, through here is the way to heaven. And the angel is sort of like, P- Peter's with God, right, in, in heaven. So the angel's sort of, like, been put in charge <laughs> of the gate. He gets to be in charge while Peter's um, in heaven. And Peter gave him these really important instructions, right? And this is what you alluded to before. He says, from Peter do I hold these keys— and his instruction was to err in opening mm-hmm. rather than in keeping locked, if but the soul fall prostrate at my feet. I love this image of mm-hmm. forgiveness and of the linking to the um, apostolic power of forgiveness, right? I mean, all of this is language that's in- invoking for us the Catholic sacrament of confession in which the priest at the end, well, not the priest, but Christ through the mediation of the priest absolves us of our sins and yet does that through the mediation of the priest right and peter being sort of the first priest um has these keys that accomplish this and so all of this is kind of setting up the entrance into purgatory right i really um this is a great moment as we're saying i was talking with a a literature uh, teacher here where uh at my school and we were talking about the purgatorio and uh, he actually read it in one night on a train ride, which sound, sounded amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're saying, yeah, it's also, it's kind of like a, um, it kind of takes on a video game quality at this point. You got the seven P's and you got to get them off your forehead. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's true. Um, but I, yeah, Dante's kind of setting us up uh, yeah, for what's to come. That's we got sure. different, we got different levels here. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, right at this point around one, one fifteen, one sixteen, we get it. The vestments of the angel, um, Dante describes as ashes or earth, when it is dug up dry, would be the very color of his vestments. And then he draws out the two keys. And it is it is striking, right? To err in opening rather than in keeping locked, if but the soul fall prostrate at my feet. Uh, but then there's a condition, right? So you, the door is opened, right? And he says, enter, but I warn you, he who looks back must then return outside, right? So you got to keep keep the eyes forward. And that's obviously very biblical. Um, mm-hmm. But then the door swings open uh, and it gets very auditory, right? When the hinges of that right. sacred door, which are of heavy and resounding metal, were turning in their linchpins. You can almost, you, you can sense it, right? The, the opening of this gate before you and, and almost like the labor that goes into opening something this large. Um, all right. And then um, I turned uh, as he as he enters, intent on a new sound, which is so beautiful because we're so used to, as you said, in Inferno, just the the gar- just the the almost animalistic uh, sound of chaos and lament in hell. But now he says, he, I thought I heard uh, the Tadeum, uh, that great hymn of praise that the church saves for you know these most solemn occasions. Or I mean, anyone can pray at any time, but the church marks its greatest moments of thanksgiving and praise of God with the Tadeum. Um, he doesn't quite make it out, right? He's not quite equipped yet to fully receive it, which I think is cool, right? This whole theme of like how much can Dante receive as he progresses and it's going to get more, more uh, capacious is his, his ability. But um, yeah, so really quite, quite a uh, amazing canto for all that it does. And it's liturgical and sacramental moments are, are great. And so it is like going to confession for Lent, you know, t- right. reading, the, reading this, <laughs> yeah. like, why not, why not read this prior? Um, I was That's even right. with um, pride and praying the rosary with like the Annunciation, like, why not incorporate Dante and imagery? 
you know, in meditation, you know. Right. I th- I think that reading the Purgatorio during Lent is probably the most important of the three canticles to read. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, one one might think that it would be important to meditate on hell and why we'd want to avoid that. But actually, as you just pointed out, the injunction from the or the exhortation from the command, really, from the angel is don't look back, leave hell behind you. Don't we're no longer dwelling on that. Mm. There's work to be done now in the reforming of your soul, the turning of your loves away from what drags you down and upwards to God. And Dante actually, I think, um, he invites us to put the poem next to the liturgy, next Mm. to scripture, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right and to read along with it and this brings us something this brings us to this really important moment and in, in many ways it sets us up for what we encounter in the first terrace which is the terrace of pride and that is that dante is very aware of the way in which he has a received tradition that he is trying to be faithful to namely um well, well first first the tradition of roman literature and mythology he is, after all, a Roman and Italian. But second, and much more importantly, of course, the authority of the church and scripture. And yet, at the same time, Dante is a man of singular genius who is aware of his own genius. And what we have in Dante is a Catholic intellectual and um, artist who has to navigate this really difficult line between humility that recognizes inheritance, that recognizes the way one is, that everything one has, one has received as a gift, as St. Paul says. And yet, on the other hand, that precisely in glorying God um, goes to the utmost of one's ability. And so Dante later in the Paradiso will actually say, have not, he won't say it himself, he'll have the souls that are saved in heaven say that this is a new testament, he'll <laughs> say, the divine comedy, which is an outrageous claim. And mm-hmm. yet at the same time, he, he, he's saying, I went and I saw, and now I'm reporting it back. And so part of that is the fiction of the comedy. Like we said last time, the fiction of the comedy is that it's not a fiction. Mm. But it's also, to Dante, I think, much more than a fiction. He is a prophetic poet. I mean that in the biblical sense. He's a prophet. He's coming back and he's telling us something that his artistic ability has allowed him to see. And the if, if it works, if it's right, right, if it's true, right, that's going to call us and him closer to God rather than further away. And in the very next year, as soon as he steps through the door, he's going to find himself on the terrace of pride and he's going to have to wrestle with this very fact, mm-hmm. right? That he's, that he's a singular artistic genius who's accomplishing something that no one else has ever done before. And yet there's a danger in being aware <laughs> of that. And, um, and he's immediately going to take this posture of humility, like we've been seeing. And I think it's a beautiful example of a way of being, well, of being um, 
curious and alive and full as a as a um as a human being while also recognizing the need for um acknowledging one's faults and limitations mm-hmm. and it seems to me like that's what lent is um is really all about right hi it's matt here i just want to take a quick stop in the action uh to ask you dear listener to consider helping this show out uh by number one subscribing wherever you get uh your podcasts uh it's free and uh hopefully uh you've uh you know found something worthwhile in the show and uh, we'd like to keep on getting it uh, and join Paul and I through the rest of Purgatory and on to Paradise and whatever follows that. Uh, and while you're there subscribing, you can also uh, review the show, you know, give us the maximum number of stars, very Dantean theme, uh, that, that whatever the stars communicate, it's rather rich for Dante. Uh, so, you know, drop us a review, maybe a quick blurb encouraging others to check out the show. And then also, you know, share the show, whether it's uh, texting someone um, mentioning it to a stranger in, uh, you know, at the gas station, um, you know, you run across randomly an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend and don't have anything to say. So recommend the show. Um, that'd be great. Any, any help uh, in, in helping uh, the show along would be much appreciated. I also encourage you to drop down to today's show notes and click the link, uh, for Paul Camacho's, uh, will this be on the exam weekly newsletter? Definitely worthwhile. Uh, just dropping your email and hitting enter uh, to get that in your inbox every week. Paul really packs it, packs it tight with uh, with great stuff. So with that said, we'll go back to Paul and I as we uh, continue our trek onward through purgatory. So now we, we've approached now the gate of purgatory, having passed the, uh, the stern test of the angel guarding guarding our way uh, with due humility now. Uh, we'll need to become even more humble, though. But we're going to now enter through the gate and uh, in Canto 10 of the Purgatorio. And Dante describes it in this way. That is his entrance into uh, you know, Purgatory proper. He said, Once we had crossed the threshold of the gate, not used by souls whose twisted love attempts to make the crooked way seem straight, I knew that it had shut by its resounding. And I had, and had I turned my eyes to look, how could I have excused my fault? So Dante can't look back, uh, as he's instructed by the angel, right? Don't, don't look back to where you've come from, only look forward. Um, and even just the, at the outset here, just the, the subtle ways Dante just drops these major, really rich points when he talks about, you know, the souls that don't come through here are those with twisted love. So again, back to earlier themes that we've uh, touched on, Paul, uh, regarding how we love and what we love and all that. But it it was just very striking, right? He describes them, you know, we want God to make the crooked way straight, but the twisted lovers make, try to make the crooked way seem straight. Just that one little word does so much work. But, um, so that's where we find ourselves right now. That's right. And the, our two travelers, they actually have to head up through a very narrow sort of chasm, um, or a very narrow, mm, which we call it a kind of like rock, um, a crevice he calls it that they have to climb up. And it reminds us both the closing of the gate that is very loud in its closing, almost as though it hasn't been used very often or very much. And then this narrow crevice that they, that Virgil and Dante climb up. I just like that jackknifing back and forth. It seems to be what he describes. That's right. Right. Not only is it difficult, um, but it, it, it's a beautiful image because it parallels this idea of 
that 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 notion of the twisted love and then the the need to make the crooked straight but also it's a reminder of the biblical passage where Jesus talks about um how difficult it is to um enter into heaven it's like going through the needle's eye and so the entrance into purgatory is precisely this entrance as we've spoken about before this is an entrance into the reality of salvation although more work still needs to be accomplished so we we move up through this cleft and then we we arrive on our first terrace um, there are seven terraces as we've said on mount purgatory proper and the first terrace is going to be dedicated to the sin of pride each one of the terraces occupies or, or um, is concerned with one of the classical seven deadly sins and what we're going to talk about um, with this terrace, it, it stretches over three cantos. So it's the it's the longest period that Dante gives to any of the sins on Mount Purgatory. And each one of the cantos, cantos 10, 11, and 12, each one is dedicated to an aspect of purgatory that he thinks is essential for the way in which the soul cooperates with God in making its own crooked love become straight. So um, I want to talk about that, but first I actually want to take a step back and um, look at a poem written by um, the Catholic poet um, a, and a fellow professor at Villanova, James Matthew Wilson, that he wrote in response to um, thinking about Dante, um, thinking about Dante's divine comedy, but also thinking about the central theme for um, Cantos 10, 11, and 12, namely the issue of pride and Dante the poet's own involvement in pride. So let me read this poem by James Matthew Wilson. And then Matt, I'd, I'd be just really curious to um, hear from you what it is that you hear in these lines and how it relates to what we've seen of Dante so far. So this is a poem called Ambition. It was published in the Hudson Review and it's written by James Matthew Wilson. Halfway along in reading A New Life of Dante, I'm still marveling at the man's conviction he's been set apart for greatness, though of its form he's still unsure. So far, in fact, he's marred most that he's tried, and left the rest unfinished, promising nonetheless some lasting work not yet begun. I bend still closer to the page, my mind halting before a pride it can't quite fathom. So it was with the climbing Dante, stopped, hunched down, to speak with the famed illustrator he found crawling beneath a marble tablet on the route to purification. How he lingered there, seeing his future. He knew the punishment that he would suffer, and suffered the more harshly for a vice that strengthened him in flinty solitude and humiliation. However true it may be that his poem would never have been written had he not sealed off his soul from all discouragements, it was still a failing. After all, we can see the difference between the soldier of true courage and the one whose brazen recklessness would lead men to their deaths. The woman whom we think a connoisseur, we soon enough will figure out just ooze at everything which sounds like foreign chocolate or cellared wine. But there's a reason that Aquinas said that all ambition is a sin. We can't, when stiffened by that certitude it brings, see the cause clear. For, 
in the genius plotting intricate rhymes to execrate the avarice and envy of those who burned his home and cast him out in wooded darkness, who passed a sentence on his children's heads, and in the gangly dancer without rhythm, the politician with a taste for fame, it's all the same. It's terrible that way, like power and beauty. The mind can hover over its abyss, can hear the cataract roaring from below, and see its force shaping the rough stone of the world about us. But there's no prior assurance, just the late judgment, once we're past change and bowed to read our life's spread book. So, so it's a long poem, but um, a there, there's poem. a lot in there that really it's a beautiful poem. And um, I, I really encourage our listeners to seek it out. Maybe we can include it in the show notes. Yeah, um, I'll put a link. He, um, James Matthew Wilson is doing a lot here, but I'm, I'm just curious, Matt, what you, what you hear or how you'd relate it to the contos we're about to, to talk about today. You know, it's funny when James is writing that he, he's bowed down to the page. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's so good at weaving together, you know, what Dante's writing and how he's reflecting upon it. But it's interesting, sort of that, that lampooning, that idea of spearing our inflated sense of self or our, our own expertise. So he mentions there the, the woman that uh, we think is cultured and, and has great taste of what, chocolate. Does he mention chocolate and wine? Chocolate and wine, yeah. Just as long as you have a fancy enough sounding name and you can right. maybe three quarters pronounce it the right way. And then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we eventually see that person for who she is. And and then I guess James is also inviting us as Dante is to witness to our own inflated senses of whatever uh, that we think we might be good at or, um, or want others to think that we're expert at. But also there's something there I think he mentions in the beginning, sort of Dante's desire for greatness and and i'm I'm wondering like there's a tension there because like shouldn't we all aspire to a certain type of uh goodness and greatness and excellence but i guess how we exhibit exhibit it or undertake it um right that's where a lot of it comes down to and i i think that's right i think i think you know the way i read this poem there's two things going on for to my mind at least, is that um, uh, right? James is pointing out to us that Dante could not have accomplished the comedy, could not have written this incredible poem without great ambition. And that ambition we saw in a funny way right at the very beginning of the poem. For as lost as Dante was, he says, I'm the only one besides um, – Aeneas and St. Paul, and also he leaves Daniel, he never names him, but also Christ, who went to the underworld while still in the, in, in, well, Christ didn't even go to the underworld in the body, right? Didn't even go to Hades in the body. So he says, only with, only with Paul and Aeneas have I gone. But, but more than that, Dante wants to be the new Virgil. Dante wants to create, as we said before, a theology of the afterlife, that that gives us incredible beauty and he's faithful to something but at the same time there's an incredible ambition there and i think that knowing james as i do i suspect that he is very aware that all 
human creation, when it strives for excellence, runs the danger of that kind of pride, that all great poetry runs right up against the edge of that of that pride. And here's the thing that doesn't come out as much in the in the poem. Um, James is, I think, rightly calls our attention to what we might overlook, namely Dante's own pride, and he kind of calls Dante to task for it. Which you might say is, a, is almost a prideful kind of thing to do. Like, who would dare to be critical of Dante, no matter how great a poet you are yourself, right? But I think what what doesn't come across in James' poem, and that we're going to talk about today, is that Dante is very aware of his own pride, and that actually uses the comedy in a in a really interesting way. This this construction that he has, where he's both the poet, but also the main character, to 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 shape his character in such a way that the pilgrim who's journeying along has to become aware of his own pride and also do the work to start to do the work that's being done on Mount Purgatory that couldn't be done in hell. And that is to start to purge the sins that um, we have committed and are attached to. So these conto, all the contos in, in Purgatory are an invitation for us, and I think Dante suggesting here on the Terrace of Pride that he, it it it's a invitation for himself as the poet, as the actual poet writing writing this in the in the early 14th century, to be aware of his own pride, right? Um, that all human beings have to have to face this, and that he, I think there are subtle indications. We'll see them as we as we continue to speak about it. There are subtle and, and not so subtle indications that Dante recognizes this is perhaps his gravest sin. And this is the place where at one point later on in, in a passage that we won't uh, probably read, he says, um, you know, when I come back here, he's talking to a, um, a penitent and he says, you know, when I'm back here on Mount Purgatory, um, not in this body when I've died, I'm going to spend a lot of time on that first terrace. <laughs> That's what he says uh, to him. You know, So he's very aware of his own pride um, and he puts it on the page. He doesn't make himself into a hero who's invincible. I, I find that marvelous and, and astonishing. Yeah. And as you were speaking, I'm just wondering though, and maybe you could chime in on your own experience, but the process of creating, whether it's poetry or art or, you know, sculpture, uh, as we mentioned here in the canto, um, and I'm thinking of writing in particular, it, I think there's something humbling within the task itself. So, you know, I kind of running contrary to, you know, maybe what I was saying earlier, but like, if you're willing to put a piece of your own writing out there for others, uh, it involves a certain vulnerability and uh, maybe enforced humility. I don't, I don't know. There's something within the, the, the crafting itself that is almost, I don't know, Dante experienced this himself, but it seems to me like it's, it's by its very nature a humbling enterprise um, trying to practice the craft and recognize your deficiencies regularly. I think that's right. That's absolutely right. Actually, you, the bringing up the notion of craft or what we, we could say here, what Dante is about to talk about in terms of art is really important. Um, let me put a pin in that and come right back to it. But because art is going to be so central to not only this terrace, but the whole of the way that purgatory functions, and that'll be important for what Dante's doing with the comedy. But to, but to take a step back, I think that's right in terms of the vulnerability that comes with crafting. I think Dante also is a part of a long tradition that sees the 
poetry, not as a, not merely as an individual accomplishment of excellence, like the singular genius, but as following the the long platonic tradition taken over by Christianity, that art is best when it is mimetic, that is, when it mirrors or copies or reads from nature and in the Christian context from divine revelation. And yet, at the same time, Dante goes out of his way in the poem to tell us, to signal at first sort of more or less covertly and then eventually more and more overtly that he's the greatest poet who ever lived. <laughs> he, he he gets to have those in hell and purgatory and heaven say something about him. And what do they say? <laughs> You're a new revelation. Um, there are all these there are all these moments where he's going just beyond Virgil, right? Physically, in the beginning of Canto Ten, Virgil says, "Turn and look over here," and Dante says, "And I walked past Virgil, walked right past Virgil." And the comment the commentators they go crazy. They say, "This is Dante saying, see, I've surpassed Virgil." Um, <laughs> so, so at the same time, this is an artist or a craftsman who's at the very, very height of his powers, and I think. He's if if so when someone makes a claim for themselves that outstrips their actual abilities, that's a kind of foolish pride. And we can be embarrassed by it or we can be annoyed by it or we can say, you know, you don't have a right estimation of your abilities. But what if you actually are truly excellent? What's your relationship to your excellence supposed to be? Um, Dante Dante presents that question to us in his person and in the poem. And that's, um, that I think is a really fascinating and difficult question. And he, he, he sort of walks the line, but what I wanted to, all I wanted to call attention to was the fact that he's not unaware of it here. And he actually goes out of his way here to, I'll put it very plainly. I think Dante, the poet humbles himself as Dante, the pilgrim in these contests and throughout the whole of the divine comedy, aware as he is of the way in which he's flirting with the kind of pride that he rightly condemns or sees as needing correction. Right. Yeah. And while earlier I was talking about all the, the vulnerability and sort of the humbling nature of craft at the same time, when you do get it right, kind of to what you're just saying, you do get a sense of mastery. Which right. I think is great for the human person, right? To look upon your work and say, you know, it's good, you know, uh, right. in, in a very affirming way. But right, that, but then you get that, right? Um, does that lead to uh, an inflated, uh, an inflated pride? And we'll, I, I, I love the way he describes that. Maybe it's in eleven or twelve. Um, but maybe we can go further than intense, since we're talking about you know works of art and sculpture and and such. So. We get we're going through the winding path, right? We hear how they, you know, they 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 jackknife back and forth, and then uh, as they're walking along, Dante notices a white marble wall, um, and he, he begins to recognize these these sculptures within it. That and maybe this is part of the humbling task of, of the of this section of the Purgatorio, right? Uh, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming like these are of divine cause right these these sculptures right, right? and so there's gonna be, there's really nothing better that human beings can do than what he's seeing now so the divine artist's work uh is on display um and so we get these examples of humility these paradigms of humility um starting with the annunciation and and with mary um 
I don't know. Do any do any of these stand out to you as uh, being particularly Im- well? Absolutely. Impactful? There's there's some amazing things that are happening here, as you, as you pointed out. Art functions in the purgatory in a very specific way. It's always going to show up at the beginning of each of the terraces in in various ways. It's not always going to be statues carved into the side of the mountain, um, but it'll always be there. Will always be art, and why art? Dante thought, and he lived the conviction that art is the way in which God educates us. So that beauty and the this figurative representation is the way that we're best educated by God, and so so the art here is divine instruction it's pedagogical and the really amazing thing is that every um one of the terraces begins with um an image or a representation of the countervening virtue that would straighten that crooked love so for pride what you have is um, humility. For envy, what you have is um, gratitude and generosity. Um, and you could go along um, with each one of the sins. But what Dante does and what the way purgatory functions is you get um, the first thing that you encounter on any given terrace is an exemplar of the countervening virtue. And the first one is always that of Mary. So the first image we get of the virtue that would correct your crooked love is of Christ's mother. It's it's this really beautiful way in which Dante's own devotion to Mary and also the recognition that she possesses a fullness of the virtues um, in virtue of the fact that she was um, um, born um, without sin. So, and as the as the highest sort of human exemplar of of humility. So I, I I love the um the we could we could just read a few of the lines here from the the Mary exemplar, and we can we can see two things. One is how Mary's functioning as an exemplar of humility, but two, how the art is working here. So he says, uh, this is at um, verse thirty four. The angel who came to earth with the decree of peace that had been wept and yearned for all those years. This, of course, is the angel uh, Gabriel who shows up at the Annunciation, which opened heaven ending God's long ban, appeared before us so vividly engraved in gracious attitude. It did not seem an image carved and silent. One would have sworn, he said, Ave. For she as well was pictured there who turned the key to love on high. And in her attitude imprinted were the words, Ecce ancilla dei, that's Latin for behold the handmaiden of, of the Lord. And these words were as clearly, were, were imprinted as clearly as a figure stamped in wax. So you have a couple of things going on here, but you, you have um, the, um, the centrality of Mary the response, I'm the handmaiden of the Lord, which is a response of humility. But what you also have is art that's so perfect, it confounds the senses of Dante. Um, Above, he says that this is white marble that's carved with so much art, it puts nature's very self to shame. So the artist is able to out nature nature, so to speak. This is how we know God is the artist of of the exemplars here. And he's giving this beautiful um, and kind of like subtle depiction of this 
we call like synesthesia or a confusion of the senses, right? His eyes are seeing it and it's, there are sounds almost coming from it. It's so realistic and lifelike um, as he sees it. So, so that one with Mary is just, um, yeah, it, it's beautiful and, and really great. Um, what, what did you really think about like- the David? Yeah, oh, so I was just going to bring David up. I love the yeah, David one. Yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, I thought I thought you probably would. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I don't know if it's if there's something Franciscan in there and it's pulling on my uh, inner inner Francis heartstrings. But um, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so we have mentioned, um, you know, as you're saying, right? The carved in marble were the cart and oxen. This is 55 and onward drawing the sacred ark that makes men fear to assume an office not entrusted to them, uh, lest you uh, you die real quick <laughs> trying to prop up the ark uh, from the Old Testament story. Um, and then, right, there's this confusion, right? He sees incense and thinks he should smell it, but there's no smell. So he's like, you know, there's this inner, inner confusion there. But then on 64, um, there the humble psalmist leapt and danced before the blessed vessel with his robe hitched up. And was at once both more and less than king. Love that line. That, that's so yeah. good. Um, you know, I was thinking as as I was reading this and, and thinking of pride and just other stuff going on in my life. Just like even thinking of, of having kids. And am I able like David to just sort of enter into this holy foolishness? You know, um, you know, David's the king. He, he's got the Ark of the Covenant, yet he's able to do this. And to frolic and to Anson, you know, um, and I wish I was able to do that more. To be honest, just sort of like right. just to divest myself of <laughs> all the petty little crap in my life that I that I might over, you know, um, make more of than I should, and just enter into that joy. Um, and I think I'd be a better father for it. Yeah, that the better there is really that comparative, that little comparative you said at the end. I think is really crucial. I mean, that David would be less than king as he dances before the ark, we can understand, right? According to human terms, this is unbecoming of the dignity of a king to be dancing in this way, but that he would be more than king because of this willingness transforms our own understanding of what is meant by kingship, right? That that kingship actually means a disposition, a right disposition with respect to what is ultimate and a willingness to celebrate that un, unmindful of one's own appearance in a certain way since the way in which one appears in rightly dancing and worshiping before before the ark before this fundamental good actually expresses what it is that a king ought to express and be for his people and so too we could say the same thing about as you say being being a father so, so too by the way we could say um autobiographically dante is is I think here identifying, and he does in other places in the poem himself with David. Again, another thing that would seem to be hubristic, except that he's saying what, one easy way of taking this, or one straightforward way, is that he's writing in the vernacular. That's considered to be really low poetry, and yet he's both more and less than poet, if we could say. Right? Um, he also is like David. He David is prophetic in the writing of the Psalms, not least because of the theological tradition from the early church through the middle ages that the that in some ways the psalms contain both christ speaking in himself and christ speaking to the body that is um the the body that is the church so 
Dante, so too Dante sees himself as prophetic in this way. Um, so there's there's just so much um, going on here, as always in Dante, right? It, it kind of touches you on an emotive level. It touches you on a personal level. There's the there's the context of Dante's own life. There's the the longer theological tradition of the church, and all of it compressed into maybe even just that one verse, right? <laughs> Both more and less than King. Yeah. That, that um, one's really uh, – I, I like that one. I need to hold on to that one. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what comes next on the on the terrace is um, something that will show up in each one of the terraces. So the first thing we have is the exemplars of the virtue. The second thing that happens is we sh- the penitents themselves show up and Dante has an encounter with them and is able to actually talk to them. And they talk back to him willingly, unlike the denizens of hell. And speaking of hell, we might point out the fact that um, here on the entrance into purgatory, we have marked differences from that of hell. We went through a gate in much the same way, but what happens immediately when we get up there? No one's there. Compare that to hell where there are just hordes of people who are throwing themselves into the boat. Um, Dante's got this kind of subtle commentary on where he thinks most of us will end up. But as he's looking at the art, this beautiful art, right, that confuses, but in a pleasant way, his senses. Again, compare that with the confusion of the senses and the loud cacophony and the darkness, but that had the opposite effect in in the Inferno. Here, Dante's looking at the art and Virgil sort of murmurs that he should look up and and look as these figures are coming. And Dante does something that that he does rarely throughout the whole comedy, but every time he does, it's very important. And that is he addresses us directly. And he says this, it's very important, line 106. Reader, I would not have you fall away from good intentions when you hear the way God wills the debt be paid. Do not dwell upon the nature of the suffering. Think what is to follow. Think that at the worst, it cannot last beyond the final judgment. Now, again, Dante has to call our attention to this because what we're going to see is some horrible suffering on Mount Purgatory. But there are two crucial I think, notions that Dante is inviting us to keep in mind. The first is that this is only temporary. The big difference between hell and purgatory is that purgatory is, again, as we've said before, unlike the popular imagination where purgatory is a kind of Groundhog's Day, like um, unending kind of thing, purgatory here is very much a temporal, finite thing. In fact, in the afterlife, it's the only place that will pass away. So their suffering will come to an end. And therefore, the task of the penitent is to endure. The, there is no sense of endurance in hell in the following sense, that you endure with the, with, the, with the sense of hope that it will then be overcome, right? But in hell, you abandon all hope that that will happen. Purgatory um, time is significant. But the second thing is that the, there is a payment of debt that Dante refers to here. And again, instead of thinking this as sort of vindictive from God's side, we can think about it again as the opportunity for the souls to make right what it is that they did wrong. And so their suffering has meaning. It has purpose. They, in fact, as we'll find out as we encounter these souls, they willingly embrace their suffering. And even this, we find out much later in the Purgatorio, it turns out that they decide when they're done with their own suffering on the terrace, once they know that their love has been corrected. So as horrible as it is that what it is that they will suffer, 
there's a willing embrace of it for the sake of um, uh, writing their um, their wrongs, right? I think of it kind of like I sometimes think of it like if you've ever had a like a shoulder that goes out of joint, and you and it's horrible and horrific. It makes me cringe even now to think about kind of like putting a, a joint back in socket. But you also know, like, that's the pain I have to endure as much as I would never wish or will for that itself in order to be back in wholeness and, and health. That's the kind of attitude that the souls in purgatory have. Right. And right after, you know, Dante gives us this cautionary note, um, then we see them, right? They, they uh, although they're hard to make out here on the Terrace of Pride, um, so they're not quite sure what they're seeing at first. Even Virgil doesn't quite uh, know how to make them out, but eventually we get aside the idea that we had these, th- these souls are, are crouching over, right? Uh, with these big boulders on their shoulders uh, or down, you know, over their back as well. That, the image that came to my mind was uh, like a beetle almost, <laughs> like with a hard top with a little feet underneath. Um, the image that Dante gives us is um, if you've ever been to um, there's some places in Europe, or maybe if you look at um, some Gothic architecture, it's like a column that's used for support, but imagine that. So the column is holding up the whole ceiling or archway, but into the column is carved a figure who's crouching and has, at the top of the column has hands that are kind of pushed upwards as if the, as if the column is a figure holding up the whole weight of the house or of the um, building. It's the same thing, except that these are living figures who are kind of trying to take these slow steps along, right. As they're crouching underneath these enormous stones. Um, We've talked before, Matt, about the contrapasso here that that is the idea that the sin, the punishment would be fitting to the crime. Do you, what's your sense for why Dante imagines this punishment for the um, the penitential proud? Yeah, I was thinking maybe this comes up in 11, but they're referred to as a stiff-necked bunch, which is obviously mm-hmm. very biblical, but you get the sense that, you know, just very uh, almost upright, looking down. Um, I was thinking of like Rembrandt's older son in the, uh, his painting, the uh, the return of the prodigal son, sort of just literally looking down the nose at others. Um, and I think there's mention of that in either 11 or 12, someone speaking and um, refers to their having forgotten our common mother, right. you know, the, the sense yep. of, the, of, of the commonality of humanity. So, yeah, it, it seems kind of like what you're saying earlier, right? The, the punishment here, we can call it punishment. We also might call it remedy, right? And, mm-hmm. and the person mm-hmm. is being lowered, uh, because they un- unduly, uh, you know, uh, had their back straight uh, to their uh, looking down upon all others. Right. Um, yeah, and then you know, it's well, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but just at the very end here, I was interested on one twenty one. You know, Dante, I guess, is addressing Christians, uh, but also the reader, right? I, I loved it because it was so challenging. But he says, Oh, vainglorious Christians, miserable wretches, sick in the visions engendered in your minds. And th- this one especially, uh, you put your trust in backward steps. Mm. You know, that's kind of that, that, that punchy, uh, punchy line. You know, what are we mm-hmm. actually. Uh, looking to for our whatever our, our advance and here he's saying <laughs> what you think is advancement is in fact uh, regression um mm-hmm. 
I don't know what you think about the the worms and butterflies uh, image here. <laughs> I, it's, I a fam- a, I, it's a very famous metaphor, actually. That's what I got the, the sense of in the notes. But yeah. like, I, I have a reflexive <laughs> distaste for any, not any likening of human beings to the angelic, but right. I, I do, I do have a problem with it. I, I have to be honest. Like, make it, so. Right. I'm sure Dante's <laughs> doing more there. Yeah, there's a kind of kit way of thinking about it, right? Um, and, there, and there's just the notion that we're not angels, and we, and we exactly. never will be. Um, right. So there's something metaphysical there that I re, re, you know, <laughs> recall. So at. let's read the line, and then let's talk about it, because I um, uh, he says, Do you not see that we are born as worms, though able to transform into angelic butterflies that unimpeded soar to justice? What makes your mind rear up so high? You are, as it were, defective creatures, like the unformed worm, shaped from the mud. So two things we can say here. Dante, as a good <laughs> medieval metaphysician, would never say that we transform into angels. Right? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm putting something on him that he's not. Yeah, I know, but. <laughs> but I feel I feel the same, right? The, this kind of a popular imagination of wings and harps and or, or, or just the kind of celebration of the cherub as something cute. And I, I feel the same kind of reflexive, but, but actually I think the, um, the, I, I suppose it's a simile. The simile actually has a kind of more, more punch, I think, than it initially comes across when we know something about the Aristotelian biology that's going on here. So um, Dante says what we are as human beings is the kind of worms that are caterpillars, right? So the the point of here's the point: there is a transformation, right? A um, a transformation that takes place between the Dante, the human being, and or or any human being, and those who will be in heaven. And the transformation is a completion of the self into the full glory of what it is that the human being is meant to be. And Mount Purgatory is the the chrysalis, so to speak. It's the it's the it's the place of intense um, transformation. Okay, but so Dante saying that's what you're born for. I, I'm reminded here again of the um, of the sermon by C.S. Lewis, um, "The Weight of Glory," in which I he speaks of the same of the, thing. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in which he. Th- speaks of the way in which we'll become immortal glorious that that you'd be tempted to worship. And I think that's a sense in which we'll be angelic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's almost a sense in which the distance between, you know, those who we live with and play with, he says, the, the friends we play, we joke with and s- the neighbors we snub, et cetera, they'll become these immortal splendors. Right. So, so in the same way that Dante naturally sort of, and reverently bows down before the angels of mercy. I think that's the relationship we'll have to those in heaven. Okay. But then he says, instead of doing that, so notice what's, in, what's necessary and uh, is the transformation. But instead of moving in that way, think of your backward steps again. There was this idea that there, um, that there are, um, that worms can, this is the Aristotelian biology that there was a certain kind of worms that given the right amount of moisture and dirt and warmth that would kind of spontaneously emerge from the um from the ground and then would sort of be able to transform into butterfly but dante saying we kind of revert back to the unformed um 
kind of worms that don't have any possibility of a future, right? And so there's no there's no hope of transformation there. Um, it at least gives it a little more. <laughs> the stakes are a little higher, so to speak, um, in the simile. I, I let my uh, my reflexes get in the way of. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was also reminded with the weight of glory, um, with Lewis commenting on how it's not that we desire too much in this life. Uh, we, or, you know, Christ might say to us, "We desire too little," right. and um, you know, as far as heavenly glory goes. And I love I love that sermon. I love that essay. It puts a lot of things on their head uh, in common conceptions. I think of Christianity. Um, so it's I'll, a very Dantean essay, we, we yeah. should say, um, a very Dantean essay. So, so, so here we are, the, the, around come these figures, and they're holding these enormous burdens on their back. They're hunched over. I, I'll say about the hunching, not only are their, are their sif necks sort of bent, but notice they are forced into the bodily posture of kneeling. Um, they're literally bowed down. So Dante, as a good Catholic, knows that the body and the soul are intertwined and all throughout the this canto and especially in the next canto, um, this idea of comportment or the way in which we hold our body in the world is absolutely central. And the punishment here is instructive because the souls are adopting a posture in their bodies. They're forced to because of the stones that they're carrying that they also want to accomplish in their souls. And it will turn out that Dante, in order to speak with these penitents as he's going to in the very next canto, will have to likewise, Dante the Pilgrim, will have to likewise bend down in order to see their faces and speak to them. So over and over in this canto, he takes on the posture of the penitents in order to speak with them, and thereby he he himself takes on this posture of humility and invites us to do something likewise and, and so the body here is absolutely central to Dante's um, idea of what it of what it means to be a human being and how there's a complicated interplay and the way we hold ourselves should can be instructive for how we can reform our souls but also reflects where our let's say where our hearts are at um, yeah certainly and even at the end of 10 maybe before we move on to 11 I really like the uh, at, at the end of ten, the souls are saying, "I can no more." Right? I almost can endure no more. But I think it's pointing. It's almost like you know the runner and the the weightlifter know this, right? You're sort of you're you're maxing out, or you're sprinting as hard as you can to have like an expansion, mm-hmm. uh, a certain capaciousness, yeah. you know, within yourself. Um, so that 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 notion of that purgatory, um, and then in paradise, like this idea that. There's like this. There's got to be this expansion of self so as to receive as much heavenly glory as, as one can. Um, right, and we should never forget that Dante's writing this for us now. So he's inviting us to live our purgatory, so to speak, before before we die, not after. That's right. So now we're on to Canto uh, Eleven from the Purgatorio. So we have this great. Uh, I mean, I really like this. Dante's gloss on the Our Father, prayed by the penitents. And uh, it's interesting. So it's from their perspective, um, which, is, which is really kind of intriguing. I don't know. I, I think Monty Python needs to do a version of this, sort of hunched over, <laughs> just talking in their, their British accents. I don't know. Especially when Dante and this other, I forget who it is, recognize each other. And mm-hmm. it kind of Dante lowers himself. So I don't know. I'll have to write them a letter. Monty Python, it is. Uh, <laughs> 
But the Our Father, right? Um, so just, you know, sort of Dante's expansion and gloss, right? He starts, Our Father who are in heaven, circumscribed only by the greater love you have for your first works on high. Praise be your name and power by every creature as is fitting to render thanks for your sweet breath. I really, um, going on down, um, you know, the lead us not into temptation that we now have in, in English. I like how Dante uh, puts it when he says, uh, do not put to proof our powers, which yield so lightly to the ancient foe, but deliver us from him who tempts them. This last petition, our dear Lord, and this makes sense given that they're in purgatory, is made not for ourselves. For us, there is no need because their salvation is assured now, just a matter of time, but for the ones whom we have left behind. So they're praying for us. And we, in turn, uh, I think, that whether it's shortly after or, or in this canto, canto uh, Dante saying we need to pray for them. Um, so Dante also then says, thus praying for safe haven for themselves and us, those shades trudged on beneath their burden. So again, back to this notion of uh, the maritime theme and, and pulling your ship yeah. into safe harbors. And then um, I forget where it is later on. Uh, I think Virgil's referring to um, your, your, get your ship moving. Um, yeah. I don't know. I can't wait to talk about Ulysses too and mm-hmm. Dante's beef with him. Um, I'm thinking about <laughs> the, the safe haven and endangering uh-huh. others. I don't know. There's so much there. But I, I do love um, Dante's gloss on the Our Father. It, it, worth worth yeah. praying itself. Um, That's you know. right. And um, there's so much we could say, but I'll just I'll content myself with two things. One, he's using two contemporary vernacular translations of the Bible, which is a little bit of a he's clearly sided with the vernacular <laughs> translation of the Bible, and so since he's writing in Italian anyway, it's a way to get them in. But um, maybe more sort of spiritually and theologically serious, it's really worth noting again. These are all these souls individually carrying their particular burdens. It turns out that each one has a stone that's as heavy as their pride was. So they're unequal in that sense. And yet they all pray this in unison together. And we're going to see this over and over in, in, on Mount Purgatory. The difference between the penitents here and those who suffer in hell is that here everyone says we. And in hell you only say I. Um, so they're they're going along in Dante um, – there's a lot to be said, but they're praying both for themselves and for those below. And then Dante starts to encounter um, individuals who speak out to him. There, there are three um, individuals that he that he speaks with. The first is um, Umberto. Um, Umberto is a great last name, Aldo Brandesco. Umberto Aldo Brandesco, and Umberto um, says, and "This is at line." 61, the ancient blood and gallant deeds done by my forebearers raised such arrogance in me that forgetful of our common mother, I held all men in such great scorn. It caused my death. He says, um, pride has undone me and my kinsmen. And that's why I bear this burden. So notice again, this is the first um, sinner we encounter in purgatory proper. And whereas in hell, the whole move was to make excuses, to justify, um, to hold on to what one choices were. Here, the first words out of Umberto's mouth is, um, I, I was wrong. (laughs) Quite simply, I was wrong. I forgot. (laughs) I was no, I'm no better than anyone else. I was so proud of my noble heritage. Something Dante too is proud of his heritage as a Florentine, although he has 
he thinks Florence is, you know, really um, gone to hell, um, quite, quite yeah, literally. literally. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but, but he says, I forgot, you know, what I shared with all those um, around me. And so now I'm, I'm walking along hunched. Um, yeah, I love this theme of, of sort of the common, common heritage of humanity. As we move on uh, from Umberto, we go to Odorisi. Um, a famous illuminator and artist. Um, and one of the first things, well, the first thing Odorisi says to Dante is brother. Mm-hmm. That's right. that, that just that itself jumps off the page. It's um, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Just like we see smile, a smile will show up at the end of the next canto um, here, right? The first greeting. Could you imagine anyone greeting anyone else's brother in hell? I mean, this, this mm-hmm. small, just this one word frate here that, he says, and the, and the next thing he says, so Dante says, oh, you're Odorisi. You're the best illuminator. Everyone in Paris knows you. And yeah. first he says brother, right? The common, the shared mother. And then he says the next the next word, the pages smile brighter from the brush of Franco of Bologna now, right? The honor is his now. <laughs> so um, uh, there's some indication that Dante had probably seen both of these and thought this was in fact the case, but it doesn't matter anyway. The, the point is that, um, Odorisi is able to make a right judgment about what's good without it being a threat to himself, right? And that's that's the difference between his pride then and what it is now. Um, yeah, and then he continues to mention other artists, right? It's still Odorisi who's going to talk about Chimabui and then Giotto. And, right. Um, this is so good. <laughs> Just talking about vainglory, right? He starts, mm-hmm. you know, at, at one point it was Chimabui, right? Who was right. the height, who was the, the star. And then Giotto. And then uh, what he mentions, um, thus says one Guido taken from the other, the glory of our tongue. And he perhaps is born who will drive one and then the other from the nest. Worldly mm-hmm. fame is nothing but a gust of wind. First blowing from one quarter, then another. Changing name with every new direction. I mean. Yeah. It's it's really good, um, and he, he's he's not only is he now learning the costs of pride, but he also has developed a let's say a new perspective. Um, what's the new perspective? He, he says, um, "One son stands down." This is at one oh six to eternity. Time is shorter than the blinking of an eye, <laughs> right? So he's saying, like, however long your fame lasts on, in life, right? That's nothing compared to where I am now. Right, and so the the move to the second life is one that transforms one's relationship to one's own renown. Right. I was wondering, as as I don't know, you're a philosopher by trade. Is this an occupational hazard of some philosopher <laughs> types? Like who doesn't? I mean, yeah, there, there's some big names in the tradition, right? But far fewer than our, our you know practicing academic philosophers. So. Um, I think that's right. I think I've found in my own work, actually, this is, I think this is to circle all the way back to our first poem and to your reflections on writing and craft. The more I think about my own possible renown and when I try to sit down and write or think or whatever, the more it gets in the way. I know that's not true for everyone, but, um, you know, I think Dante is suggesting here, and I think he would say this about his poetry too, like the reason to be excellent is not so that you, your name, Dante's name will be forever good, but the reason to be excellent is to produce something that's excellent in terms of art. <laughs> the same thing in terms of thought or teaching, right? And um, 
to be able to actually, this actually goes right back to something Lewis says, I think in the weight of glory, but to be able to actually do the the very best and to um, to write or say or teach something, to make a podcast that's going to change change everyone's lives, right? And then to sit, to be just as happy if someone else had done it as if you had done it, because you can you can see the power that it has in itself. Um, I think that's the goal. That's really really hard to do as yeah. a human being. Um, <laughs> That's really, really hard. Um, I think yeah. the I think the best we can get to maybe is to say the the counsel that Dante is giving us here. He says, "The same sun that causes the grass to grow also will cause it to wither and die <laughs> when it right. burns it out." Right in the summer, <laughs> it's like you know the the thing is you you have no idea what's going to become popular or not. So the best thing to do is to do your very best work, make it excellent, and then just like let go of it. In in that sense. Um, whether Dante does that or not, you know, is, yeah. is, I'm not sure, but, um, um, yeah, right. we're not all blessed or cursed with being Dante, um, no. either. It's also interesting. It's a bit flummoxing. Like, um, like if you make something of real excellence, oftentimes it's not going to be very popular because of the excellence won't be right. acknowledged. Right. Um, so, so yeah, sometimes so it is. That's the problem. Like, is, yeah. yeah, Dante right away was, renowned for this poem mm-hmm. but um often that's right um so well, well let's just say a quick word about canto 12 um there's so much more we could say about canto 11 it's a beautiful encounter and again dante is adopting this posture um can i uh, can i just throw in one last thing from 11 yeah please, please. I, I just love the um dante is now speaking back to um odorisi and he says your true words pierce my heart with fit humility and ease a heavy swelling there. So, I mean, that, that just, it's sort of like a, a swollen knee getting, you know, fluid removed. It, it reminded me of that, that, that piercing, that drainage mm-hmm. of, of the excess, uh, that sort of uh, presence. So, yes, but on the 12th. That's right. It's the words of, of, the, of one who um, calls him brother, right? It's also the example. And it's really important too. Canto 12 begins, Dante says, I, I straightened up. I stood erect as one should walk, but still my thoughts remain bowed down. So, he, so here's Dante the pilgrim. He's standing up again. He's leaving behind the penitence. And yet he keeps something of this humility with him. I think that's really essential. Mm-hmm. Um, as he walks along, we, we, we hear and meet the kind of final thing that happens on each one of the terraces. And that is after the penitents have been um, shown exa- beautiful examples of the virtue and then they, they embrace their suffering that corrects and straightens their, their crooked loves, then they're given these images, these kind of cautions of the vice to keep them from backsliding. And so um, on the ground as he's walking along, Virgil says, hey, Dante, look, look down. And as he's walking along, he sees all these examples of pride. They're in a convenient spot since the penitents are looking down as they're carrying all these things. So we have we have Lucifer falling from heaven. We have um, the the giants of the pagan um, order who were and the, and the titans who were cast down by the Olympian gods. We have um, examples from Arachne the, is in there. We have Arachne. We have examples from the Old Testament, like Nimrod and the um, the building of the Tower of Babel. Um, we have Saul, um, for example, of of who who was prideful with respect to King David. So we have all of these um, figures who are meant to keep us in our good resolve. 
Um, and so that kind of completes the purgatorial circuit. And then um, that is to say exemplars of virtue, the penance, exemplars of the, the vice um, to keep us from turning back. And then what also happens at the end of every terrace is we have the transition from that terrace to the next. And this is the first time we're making this transition. And Virgil says, um, quickly look up, um, hurry, hurry up. We, we need to keep moving. And um, what we see is there's a, there's a creature garbed in white coming towards him shining. This is an angel, right? Who's the guardian from this terrace to the next one. And what he does here, um, this is at line 91. Um, this is what Dante says. Opening his arms, the angel spread his wings and said, come, the steps are here at hand. From here on up, the climb is easy. They are very few who answer to this bidding. O race of man born to fly on high, how can a puff of wind cause you to fall? So, uh, so uh, a kind of take on the, on the simile of the, of the worm and the butterfly. And then he taps Dante on the, with his wing on his forehead and promises they'll be safe and they pass through. And as they do, they hear songs singing. Um, um, and the singing is in Latin. It sings, blessed are the poor in spirit. So this is another thing Dante does is as you move past each terrace, you hear a singing of the beatitude that also counters that vice. So the poor in spirit is countering to the, um, to pride. And of course, this is again, it's all very liturgical, right? Um, you follow the kind of sacrament of confession. Um, my son is doing the sacrament of confession right now. Um, he just made his first his first confession. And so we had to talk about all of these various things, right? You you walk up the steps, you face yourself, you see the mm -hmm. you you confess your own sin, right? Then um you're a good priest will tell you both like how you the way in which would be beautiful to live and also to warn you about this, these bad things and then yeah. give you a penance, right. That helps to shape you. And then there's the liturgical, um, um, there's the sacrament itself that liturgically mediates the grace of God to us. Right. And we're healed. But we have to say um, that I love the ending of Canto 12 and it, and it kind of puts a, it puts a nice bow on our discussion about Dante's own humility Remember how we talked about in hell, the gravity of sin is what it is that pulled us downward so that it was easy to slide down into hell. And climbing up purgatory is difficult precisely because there's the drag of sin that's continuing to pull us downward. But what we learn at the end of Canto 12 is that there's a countervening force that not only is there the force of sin pulling us down, but there's also the love of the good that pulls us upwards. And at the end of Canto 12, Dante is kind of astonished because something's changed in him. And this is what he says, Master, tell me what weight has been lifted from me that going on is hardly any effort. So he's left behind terrace, the Terrace of Pride and suddenly he feels very much lighter, right? And this is what Virgil says. He says, when the peas, remember those marks of peccata, peccata, the sins that still remain upon your brow, though very faint, shall be as one already is erased. Your legs shall be so mastered by goodwill. Not only will they, will they feel no effort going up, but they will take delight in being urged to. Mm -hmm. And so the image again is that as Dante's sins are being removed, as the penitent sins are being removed, figured um, on the penitent or the pilgrim Dante by the peas on his forehead, the soul becomes lighter and lighter, is able actually to move up 
it's it's not just like the weight has fallen away. It's also that they're sort of energized with a new mm-hmm. power that brings them upwards. Um, the the parallels with like getting in shape and working out are very evident, right? It's sort of like a virtuous cycle now that um, that happens. And then we have this great ending to the to the um, this first terrace of pride. And here's how Dante describes it. He says. Then I did as those who go along with something on their head unknown to them, unless its effect on others make them wonder, so that they reach up with their hand for answers. Touching and searching, they accomplish the task that sight cannot achieve. And spreading the fingers of my right hand, I found that of the seven letters he of the keys had traced upon my forehead, only six remained. So Dante reaches up and the, it turned out the angel had touched the forehead, his forehead and wiped away one of the peas, right? And then the last line of the, of Canto 12 is, observing this, my leader smiled. It's this beautiful world that wordless um, uh, and very gentle, um, <laughs> what uh, figuring of a kind of welcome and celebration and, um, and a little bit like you you didn't know this was almost like almost like a return it's almost as if dante's a child and virgil is like a parent who smiles at the kind of naivete but it's a but it's a good kind of smile it's one that celebrates his return to innocence right. here yeah no i love that last line it's almost like a uh, virgil doesn't even really intentionally smile it just sort of comes across his face spontaneously right. in, in joy so Right. And so and you also get a sense that there's a, that mentioned more than once the, the notion of safety. It seems to me like now removing mm-hmm. pride, like that's going to be the biggest obstacle that mm-hmm. you have to overcome being the deadliest of the sins. And now, you know, things are going to get easier, more delightful, more energized. So a great way to a great way to move forward. Um, that's right. And a turning point in the Purgatorio, both for Dante, the pilgrim, but also for us, the readers, um, as we continue to move upward. Thanks for listening to this uh, installment of our Lenten Dante series. We'll have one more on Mount Purgatory, and this is a really, really important one. Lots of great stuff. We'll hear our last words from Virgil. We'll hear, uh, prior to that, his beautiful and really instructive uh, discourse on love. We will meet Beatrice, uh, which is a fantastic and, um, well, you'll see. There's a lot going on with that one. And, uh, and you're not going to want to miss it. So our next episode will, uh, will see us, uh, uh, rising to the, to the apex of Mount Purgatory, uh, just prior to our, uh, ultimate ascent into Paradiso. So until that next time, let's continue journeying further up and further in. <laughs>